You're listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2212 South Broad Street. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. We have Shauna O'Neill here to speak to us. She is one of our cell leader apprentices. Um, You're going to get to hear more about her story tonight, so I won't go on and on. But um, we've been in the series that we've called The End of Alienation um, because we wanted to, and that's where our, our fire is coming from here, we wanted to explore how we're really more connected to God and to others and to the earth than we normally think. You know, it's so easy to feel isolated and alone and disconnected, I think, in our culture today. And we wanted to um, notice the connections. And Shauna's going to kind of bring us home tonight with with this primal uh, and yet very spiritual connection to God that she has um, gone after in a big way and um, that she's nurturing among us. So thank you, Shauna, for being willing to tell your story. Come on up. Hi, everyone. So I'm going to be sharing some of my story tonight um, alongside some scripture. Um, I want to begin by with this preface saying that whatever stories I say or feelings I share about my family tonight, it's with their permission, and all of it is in the past. Um, We've reconciled any bitterness held towards each other, and they are not the truth of our relationship now. However, at one point, a lot of these stories were, um, I did believe, and they were true for me at the time, and so I share them now in hopes that anyone who has any similar feelings, my story can bless theirs. And also, I want to say that many of these truths, God is still breaking open in my heart on a daily basis. Um, The struggle is real, the struggle is deep, and thank God his voice is stronger than my own. Um, uh, can we put up the first slide? Um, so we're going to be reading from Luke 15, 11 through 32, uh, the, the story of the prodigal son. Um, it's a very long passage, so it's going to be two slides. Maybe I could get two different people, someone to read the first slide and someone to read the second. Would anybody like to read? Howard and, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, Howard, go ahead. Instead of man. He said, man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. There he squandered his estate, loose living. Now he had spent everything. Severe famine occurred in that country. He began to be a pauper. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. He sent him into his fields to feed swine. He would gladly fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. No longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He got up and came to his father. He 
was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring fat calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, he's come to life again. He was lost, has been found. They began to celebrate. That his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He summoned one of the servants and began inquiring about the king's feet. He said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. His father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fat Catholic. He said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. So we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has been found here, and was lost and has been found. Can you go back one slide? Thank you. So I'm going to talk about all the characters in this story. Thank you, gentlemen, for reading. Um, there's the father, the younger brother, the older brother, and even the servants. My primary focus eventually will be on the older brother. Much of my story follows his. Um, there are times when I will not be able to fully relate to why he's thinking what he's thinking, but a lot of the times, um, a lot of what I will have to say about my story will parallel his. So I'm going to give you a brief history of my life and my relationship with my family here just to set the stage, and then I'll weave the important pieces as we go along. So I was born as a missionary kid in the Philippines, where my parents served for 13 years. We moved back to the U.S. when I was about eight years old, because we were under-supported as missionaries. So we lived in Lancaster for about a year, thinking we were just raising some funds so that we could go back um, to home to the Philippines. Um, but when we couldn't find, uh, raise enough support, it became clear the Lord was leading our family's path back here. So we moved to Virginia for five years, where my dad was the missions director of Liberty University, uh, where he and my mom once attended and met. From there, we moved to the suburbs, where my dad was the president of a mission organization we served under in the Philippines. I was 14 when we moved here, and after completing high school, went to a certificate program Bible school in Germany for a year, and then went on to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, where I got a bachelor's in pastoral studies and women's ministries. So I just tell you all this just to set the stage that by for all intents and purposes, I was a pretty righteous person. I was the perfect little homeschooled missionary kid that all the kids at churches we visited oohed and awed over. Um, I grew up in a conservative culture, and I fit in perfectly. I was complimented for being submissive and obedient to my parents, strong, active, and passionate about my faith, and desiring to live an epic life for Jesus when I grew up. I was the second of four children, but I was treated like the eldest. My eldest sister had some learning differences, um, so she got a lot of my mom's attention. And when she and I fought, 
my mom would look at me to be the mature, responsible one because I know better. That was the most resented childhood line of my childhood. <laughs> my brother got a lot of it, my dad's attention because he was the only of three boys, the only boy of three sisters, and he was quite the little rebel. He'd actually had a lot of trauma he saw his friends go through at a very young age, and as a result of not understanding where God was in that pain, he quickly turned to drugs and the partying lifestyle. If you haven't realized yet, he's the prodigal son. My little sister was adopted, and while we never thought of her that way since she came to our family at two weeks old, and she looks like the rest of us, so you would never have been able to guess, she still struggled with identity issues as well. Plus, she was bullied uh, in school by some really mean girls. So I think any extra attention my parents had had after the other two's needs were met went to her. I know she struggled with feeling neglected, but from my perspective, she still got a lot more attention than I did. And once the older three were out of the house, she had them all to herself, every teenager's dream. And that left me, perfect Shauna. No one needed to worry about Shauna because she was responsible, capable, and in charge. I felt like I was constantly submitting to my three siblings' needs. I handled them when they got out of line or when my parents weren't around. I quickly took on a parenting role with them and no one had to worry about me. And then my dad, he would travel and come back and he'd want to process and just share about his experiences of meeting these young men and women who were living these epic lives for Jesus. I couldn't handle it because that was the one thing that I brought to my family. That was my contribution, my faith. Even though now I know he was just processing and sharing his travel stories, all I could hear, you'll never be good enough. You're too good to need our attention at home, Shauna. And yet we will, when we look elsewhere to other people's faith on their journey, you're not good enough. Again, I say this wasn't actually true. I was very deeply loved, and I did get a lot of attention. But when our hearts are blinded by sin, we only ever see what we want to. So I was striving. I was striving. I was striving. And I still couldn't be good enough. And so I broke. I was so angry at God for not making me perfect, which turns out was my definition of love, that I rejected him. If he couldn't make me into a being who could be lovable, then I didn't want to have anything to do with him. I'm going to take a pause on my story here. I want to dive into the passage, and then we can move from my experiences towards God's truth. I love the way Jesus begins this story, because he comes out swinging. I think verse 12 is such a strong opening. It's incredible to me. The younger son comes. And he demands his rights. I can hear my dad saying in a sarcastic voice in response to our annoying childish complaints, demand your rights. This was his way of saying life isn't fair. My dad was not cold or uncompassionate. But like any other parent, I think he got a little fed up at times by the constant noise of sibling rivalry. Because that's what we as humans do, right? Demand our rights. And that's what this son was doing. Dad, I want what is mine, what is owed to me. I don't care if you're not dead yet. I've tried to be patient and wait for you to die so I can get my inheritance, but you just keep on living and living and living. So how about you just pay up, old man, and I'll leave you forever. 
You pretend you have no unruly, disobedient son to deal with anymore, and I'll just pretend my father's dead. Everyone's happy. See, in this culture and in this time, nobody got their inheritance until after the parents had died. They didn't see a penny any sooner. They didn't have... Um, so this was the most radically disrespectful son thing the son could have ever thought to do in his whole life. But do you want to know what the father says to the son who looks him in the face and says, I wish you were dead. The father gave up his retirement plan, his comfort, his stability that he had worked his whole life for, all for the sake of his son. We in this country were all about our 401ks, our retirement plan, security. This was an age where there was no security, no safe banking. And yet he was the one in a million who had security. And he gave it all up for the love of a son. This was very radical on the father's part indeed. And thus, for Jesus to start a story like this would have been the most unfathomable thing. Like I said, he came out swinging on this story. So the son takes the money and he goes away into a far country, the passage says. I would imagine he needed to get that far away because that, that way is easier to ignore the shame rather than see it from the disappointment or sadness perceived or otherwise in his father's eyes. It would be easier to pretend that his father was truly dead if he didn't have to look at him anymore. And then there's older brother. Why did he stay? Did he stay out of duty to his father? Did he stay out of love of his father? Or did he stay because it was his property and now he wanted to take good care of? So I'm going to take some liberties with the text here. But if this were me, I could imagine what it would be like to be the older brother. You're tied to the land, the property, the work. You've lived your whole life here and you were groomed to take over the family business someday. You've put in the work and the effort so that when your father's passing came, you would be ready. And out of nowhere, your dad gives you your share long before he's dead. So not only do you have the inheritance much sooner than anticipated, you get your dad too. He can teach you and be around to help answer your questions or give you any support you need along the way. You have the best of both worlds. And dear God, thank you for sending that meddlesome brother away so I can get all of dad's attention for once in my life. All that obedient effort is finally rewarded. So while Big Brother is um, dutifully fulfilling his responsibility and treating his father with honor and dignity, as any righteous man would, little brother is getting his party on. He's living it up large. He's spending money like there's no tomorrow. But then one day he wakes up, and tomorrow has come. He has no more money when a famine hits the land. He becomes so low in status and he's so destitute that he works for a man feeding pigs. And he's so hungry and desperate for food that he is begging to eat out of the troughs with the pigs. But they're worth more than him. Why would they dare waste precious pig food on this man? The pigs need to be fattened so that they can be sold for a lot of money and feed a lot of people. Even a few of their bites for this man are not worth it. In his desperation, his destitution, the younger brother begins to think of his father's servants. It's curious. 
It's almost like he's never thought of them or seen them before, never taken notice of them before. I think, to him, they were pretty low on the totem pole, pretty invisible. But all of a sudden, he thinks of them, and possibly for the first time in his life, he's realizing, and I'm just so curious, how long did it take him in this place of utter humiliation and humility to realize that, that his father's servants are living a life of luxury compared to him? The outcast, the invisible, are all of a sudden seen. And out of that comes this brilliant idea that perhaps his father just might be forgiving enough to employ him. He's been known to be a gracious man. Granted, he told him he'd wished he was dead. But maybe, just maybe, he might be merciful and grant him a position in his home. So little brother gets up and goes home. Remember, he has no money, and he's far away from home. Almost so far, it's like reading a fairy tale. Long, long ago in a land far away lived a fallen prince trying to return home. He's weak. He's skinny. He's experiencing the actual meaning of starving, not the kind of starving we use in wealthy America when we haven't eaten in two hours and our tummies begin to get a little rumbly, but the actual starving where if you take more than two or three bites in a few hours, you might throw up because your body's new normal is to not eat, where you have to take a few bites and then a break until your body gets used to eating again. He's exhausted and all he wants is bed. So he comes limping up the road, and Dad sees him. Dad wasn't supposed to be waiting. This, again, was completely inappropriate, countercultural. Even if he shouldn't have been waiting because his time was precious, why didn't he have a servant waiting for him? This was not a servant's job. It is the father's job to love and wait for his children. He's sitting waiting for his son. And once again, we see him do the most radically countercultural thing. We see him run. He runs. He runs to his son. He embraces his son, and he won't even let him finish his story. He won't let him finish his apology. He won't let him finish his request for a job. He loves him. He loves his son who has disowned him, and he embraces him. He's kissing him. He's hugging him. He's weeping over him with joy for his return. I'm going to pause here and change our lenses for a minute. What would this story look like from the perspective of the servants? What would you be thinking if you were looking in at the scene of this old man hugging and kissing this son who is literally skin and bones? Can you imagine being a servant to a good, wealthy man who takes care of you? But his son can be such a jerk. And when the father wasn't around over the years and you had to answer to the spoiled son who treated you like dirt when in fact he saw that you existed or were a person at all, you love your master. You treat him with loyalty and respect. Even if it crossed your mind to disobey him, you would never want to. And yet his son returns, and you were told to throw him the most lavish party that existed at the time. You were told to find the fattest calf the master has and slaughter it for the son's return party. What would you do? Would you, for the first time, consider disobeying him and feel tempted to find the weakest, scrawniest calf on the property 
Would you think the man had finally lost his marbles? Or would his influence of love and compassion that you had watched and been touched by over the years rub off on you? Could you as the servant, the unseen, the invisible, the poor and disregarded, forgive the younger brother for his years of mistreatment towards you? A lot of the time in this story, I'm the older brother. I stored up a lot of bitterness and jealousy and anger and feeling like I didn't get a lot of attention growing up. But once in a while, I resonate with the father. Can you put the next slide up and the next one? Shane and I are best friends. It's my brother, my dad, and I, long ago. Um, we always have been. People thought we were twins growing up because we looked so much alike and we were always hanging out together. And in my care of him and years of babysitting all three of my siblings, there are times to this day that I struggle not to put on the motherly role, um, the parental hat, and I look at this father embracing his son and my soul connects. After all the verbal abuse and neglect and downright meanness, Shane would heap on me and my family. When he came to me that Christmas of 2009 and told me that he had tried to get off drugs so many times and that he was tired of the losing battle and that if something didn't change very soon, he would be dead in six months or less, my wedding was in six months most likely from a heroin overdose. I remember sitting in that car late at night, in the dark, weeping and holding him. All I could whisper over and over and over again, the only thing I could think to say, we'll do it with you. You're not alone. And by we, I meant our family. I told him we would detox from the drugs with him. We would go through the darkness with him. We would stay by his side. We would not leave him, and we didn't. Shane and I went home to be with my parents that Christmas, and we shared a room. I slept on a small single bed, and he slept on the floor. And I remember that week as he detoxed from all the drugs in his body, and I would hear him moving endlessly throughout the night because he was in pain. I didn't understand the pain he was going through. I actually thought Satan was surrounding him and attacking him. So I would crawl out of bed and lay next to him, and I held him, and I just prayed. I just tried to stay in the darkness with him as he moved his way through it. We did. We did our best to be with him in his pain, in his recovery. Can you click again? This was Shane that week. I forced him to go caving with us, and I had no idea how much pain that caused him. You can see how sick he looks. The Lord's mercy was upon him, and by that New Year's, he had found new life in Jesus. And the celebration I felt in the depths of my soul, just like the father with the son, was so astounding. I had watched Shane torture our family for years, and I had watched Satan plague his soul even longer. I knew Shane's pain wasn't over, but I knew now he had the support of his heavenly father. Walk, walk him through any darkness Satan would attempt to throw at him. In that, Jesus will always be victorious. This was us last spring. So you want to know what happens next? Shane finally, after almost a decade found Jesus, found the light, found healing, was able to move his life forward. 
guess what happened to me? I very slowly, very silently moved to a dark place. Shane, who needed his big sister, who loved her and looked up to her, who wanted her support as he walked his way to a new faith in Jesus, lost her to her own demons, her own darkness. Within six months of that Christmas, I would proceed towards a seven-year journey of my own where I was so angry at God, I wanted very little to do with him. And this is where I really begin to get in the story. This is where my story aligns with the older brother and anger at the father and lack of understanding why I was not celebrated as a righteous daughter consumed my heart. Okay, next slide. So verse 25 opens, and we encounter brother, a little brother coming, or big brother coming home off the field after a long day of hard work putting in the sweat equity, not just manning, managing and running, running the place, but actually out in the fields working alongside the people. He comes home and he hears a party going on. When the servants give him the news, he becomes livid. He becomes so angry. And quite frankly, I feel angry for the older brother. I feel his wrath. And my first instinct is to support him. For starters, it's his half of the inheritance that now exists in the property. The little brother ran off with his. So I know I have felt the injustice of that all my life. Of all that in my life. That's mine, not his. You don't have my blessing to spend my money to celebrate him. I remember back in 2006, three years before Shane met Jesus that Christmas, when I was studying for a year in Germany. It was a great opportunity, but I was lonely, homesick, and sad for the majority of the time. I was very depressed and unable to embrace the experiences as others around me seemed to be. My shining light quickly became that my mom was going to visit me at the end of my year and fly me home. And on my way home, we were going to take this amazing opportunity to visit my motherland, Ireland. And to boot, I was going to meet some distant relatives. I love family history. I was ecstatic. It was the trip I'd wanted to take my whole life. My mom was checking out flights and planning on the best routes would be. And while doing this, she took a work trip with my dad for a few days. And while away, my brother back home stole a car. As a result, it forced my parents' hand, and they couldn't leave for a while. That meant canceling our trip. The anger, the injustice. How could he be so selfish? I'd obeyed, I'd obeyed, I'd obeyed. And how was I rewarded? Heartache and disappointment. The unfairness of it all, the injustice of it all, the fury that burned in my soul. My brother was one of my dearest friends. I adored him. How could he do this to me? How selfish. I couldn't stand the thought of him. Needless to say, I think I have a glimmer of understanding of why Big Brother might be a little angry here. He doesn't trust the transformation because he's seen Little Brother fail his family and rob him of joy over and over again. Why was this time any different? So as he's contemplating his anger and his self-righteousness, the injustice of it all, dad, father, comes out. And I want to make sure you see this point. Dad came out. He noticed big brother was missing. It wasn't a celebration for him unless both sons were there. It was important that the family celebrate together. 
but Big Brother can't see that. No, he's too busy building up the argument in his head, ready to assault Dad verbally and make sure he knows just how unfair he is being. Look, for so many years, I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured all your wealth with prostitutes, by the way, you killed the fattened calf for him. You know, that's a really great question. That question is the crux of the point of this passage, for me at least. Why wasn't the older brother celebrated for his righteousness, for his goodness, for being the perfect, most well-behaved child? And it's not even like he's asking for a fattened calf. All he wants is a little tiny goat, so tiny it would barely make a dent in the family budget. He's asking his father what his value is worth to him. So this made me wonder, what was his motive for asking this? Was it false pretense or true humility? If it was false pretense, then what he's really asking is, I was the perfect child. What is all this effort, this works-based effort worth if I can't even get a goat out of it? He's using false humility, trying to pretend all he wants is a goat, when in reality he wants more. He wants his father to come back and affirm him, saying, you are my perfect child. I love how easy you are compared to your brother and how much you obey me and how hard you work. And you're worth two fattened calves. He wants to be boosted up. He wants to know what his worth is to his father. And if he's asking out of true humility, all I'm asking for, Dad, is a little goat. I don't need a fattened calf. I just need a small goat, something to show you care. You don't need to do anything fancy, and I don't want a lot of attention like he does. Just something. The sad part of this would be that he's undervaluing his own worth in that request. He is worth so much more to his father than just a goat or even a fattened calf. I don't think he realizes it, but either way you splice the question, either motive you might perceive from his heart, and I think there was a little bit of both going on, He's missing his true value to his father, that he is completely, unequivocally, no effort necessary. My jealousy of Shane came out of my lack of understanding of how desperately I was and am loved. I was blind to how loved I was. I understood my worth to be and how perfect I could be, how compliant and how Christian. And because I was never going to attain perfection this side of heaven, I was always going to fall short of my own standards. To that end, it didn't matter how well I was loved by my parents. I could never see the purity of their love towards me because I didn't understand that they loved me as I was. So I would always be jealous of Shane and the attention he got until that simple truth became the guiding voice in my life. Gregory Boyle in the book Tattoos on the Heart, oh, back one, yeah, puts it so well. I was brought up and educated to give assent to certain propositions. God is love, for example. You concede God loves us 
and yet there's this lurking sense that perhaps you aren't fully part of the us. The arms of God reach to embrace, and somehow you feel yourself just outside of God's fingertips. Then you have no choice but to consider that God loves me, yet you spend much of your life unable to shake off what feels like God only embracing you begrudgingly and reluctantly. I suppose if you insist, God has to love me. Then who can explain the next moment when the utter fullness of God rushes in on you, when you completely know the one in whom you move and live and have your being, as St. Paul writes? You see then that it has been God's joy to love you all along. And this is completely new. In the older brother's anger towards his father, he's not just speaking on behalf of himself and his own feelings. He's also rebuking his father on behalf of his good name. Let me give you an example. My dad became a follower of Jesus shortly after high school after living a life of drugs and partying and watching his friends die left and right from drug overdoses. There hasn't been one day of his life since then, since that change, that he hasn't been all in for Jesus. His greatest impulse since that moment has to been to proclaim the good name of God the Father and his son Jesus Christ to any and all who will listen. That has been the greatest joy of his life. One day, also before Shane met Jesus, when I was about somewhere between 18 and 20, I remember taking a car ride with my dad, and he told me that he was praying about leaving his possession, position as president of the mission organization he was leading to be more available to Shane, but also because he believed that no one should follow him if he couldn't even raise his own son in the way of Jesus. I know there's scripture that speaks to this point for people in ministry, but it's very Im- and it's very important, but in no way did I believe that my dad fit this category. In fact, when my dad shared this with me, I was furious. The anger that pulsed through me towards Shane for putting this great man in a position where he would doubt a lifetime of ministry and service to others broke my heart. Shane was ruining my dad's good name. Whether others thought that to be true, I don't know, but he caused my dad to doubt his good name and work of Jesus. That was what mattered most. I'm pretty sure I rebuked my dad so hard for thinking this, nonetheless actually contemplating following through with it. This older brother is rebuking his father for the same thing I was rebuking my father for. How could you honor brother's greatest shame that he is pouring over you? He is heaping coals upon your good name. He is bringing shame to our family, and you honor him for it. But this is the clincher. This is the clutch. Please, if you hear nothing else I say today, hear this. God loves us so desperately. His love is greater than his good name. So much so that he allowed his name to be slandered through his son. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 summarizes it best. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was humbled in human form, servant form, the invisible and experienced the most humiliating death ever imagined. If that isn't shaming the Father's good name, then I don't know what is. What the older brother isn't able to understand, and what I wasn't able to understand that day in the car with my dad, because neither of us had been broken yet as the younger brother was, it is the Father's greatest honor to bear our shame. His love is so deep so immeasurable that it can bear the shame. He is big enough, strong enough to bear the shame that we are too frail and too weak to. We see this in the father's response. Son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. I have given you everything, my property, my retirement, my good name. Just as our eternal father says, I have given you everything, my son, eternal life. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Dad is dying to celebrate big brother. He does it in small ways every day that they were together and they mean nothing to older brother. When the older brother is ready to accept his lostness, the father will be ready to celebrate. He didn't know he was lost. How could he? He'd never left home. He wasn't ready to receive the celebration. It would have just reinforced his works-based efforts, his striving toward perfection. A celebration would not have exposed to him how much he was loved as he was. Currently, I work for my parents as an administrator organizing and planning a conference they host for young leaders every year in ministry. My dad loves to share this story. When we're gearing up for a conference and we're getting close, I'm calling him a lot, more so as his administrator than his daughter. But my role as his daughter is never disregarded. I can't call him up and say, hello, Mr. O'Neill, can I have a word? No. When I call him up, it's the same greeting it's been my whole life. Hey, Dad. I've heard him share that story a million times. It's one of the proudest experiences of his life to hear hear me call him and say, Hey, Dad. And he celebrates me every time he shares that story. Luke 11, 9 through 10 tells us that if we knock, the door will be opened to us. God is eagerly sitting by the door, waiting for the faintest knock. And he hears, as soon as he hears it, he's ready to swing it wide open. Just like my dad, always ready to pick up my phone, my phone call, and hear, hey, dad. So, too, God has eagerly been sitting by the phone call, phone waiting for my call. Hey, Abba. Because his immediate, 
desperate response has been, I love you. That's all you wanted for me. Seven years of darkness and a barrier between me and him. And all he wanted for me was to hear that one simple truth as a warm blanket for my soul. Shauna, I love you. I love you. I love you. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.